Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And this episode, we are going to discuss fandom, what it means to be a fan or in fandom, the benefits and how or why things can go wrong. And we are clearly a part of this group, which you should know based (laughs) on the podcast that you're listening to. We're fans of the television show Supergirl. And Vivi and I have also been sort of tracking and discussing fan behavior in the Supergirl fandom for the past couple of years now. So yeah, we have lots of thoughts, nerdy thoughts on all ends. Yes. So hopefully you'll get some new knowledge out of this and also some new ideas about how to engage as a fan. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things to probably address is the idea of the super fan, which (laughs) seems like a pun, but is not actually specifically about fans of Supergirl. It's actually a official term for fans who are really passionately engaged beyond just casually consuming media. They're fans who cosplay or create their own transformative content or who go to live events and interact with people who produce the content that they enjoy. And so clearly, like, we are in that category. (laughs) So generally speaking, most fans who reach the level of qualifying as a super fan tend to do it because they find a personal emotional resonance with the media that they are consuming or with the people who have created it in some way. So like an actor, a musician, an author. Mm -hmm. There's also a significant sort of social aspect to being a fan, of course, and also sort of a social role that media plays. Mm. So it serves this function of being a source of connection and communication. Yeah, and it's also interesting because the idea of being an intense fan like this in the context of sports has been really normalized, Mm. but it's only just now starting to really be recognized as a thing that people do in other contexts on a large scale. And so obviously, with regard to this second component about connecting to other fans who share your interest and communicating that interest to people, the rise of what's known as social media 2.0, so all of the big platforms that most people use like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Tumblr, that significantly changed the way fandoms are understood because the activity that goes on in these communities is now so much more visible to all of society for better or worse. But obviously also the rise of social media and kind of global interconnectivity that came with it also means It's much easier now for fans to meet each other, at least digitally, and find people who share those interests with us, which increases your enthusiasm about whatever the thing is that you like. It's also interesting because it increases the enthusiasm of more casual viewers as well. Yeah, because you'll see on like particularly reality TV shows, they intentionally foster that engagement by telling people to go online and like vote for, you know, your favorite character on the show or tell them your opinion about something. Mm -hmm. And in terms of connecting fans, there's so many really fun things that you get to be able to do once you connect to other people who share that particular interest with you. Like there's a whole universe of going to conventions or hosting smaller meetups for groups of fans who've become friends with each other. There's participating in what's officially known as remix culture, which Mm -hmm. is creating memes, art, GIFs, videos, reinterpretations of story, participating in cosplay, creating song parodies, pretty much anything you can think 
of somebody has done it in order to entertain or amuse their peers. Yeah. In terms of like how much social media has had an impact, I remember studying fan behavior in undergrad and reading about like Star Trek fans meeting up with each other in person to show slideshows set to music. <laughs> of characters and sort of tell a story that way. And now it's a lot easier to engage in that sort of remix behavior. Yeah, well, and also figure like sharing art or stories had to be done in print media and actually mailed to people. Mm -hmm. And there was also that element of legality that was trickier. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting with that because nowadays, rather than confronting fans with lawsuits so much because that can have so much public blowback, a lot of multimedia platforms have now just made it easier for the owners of copyrighted work to just make money off of the things fans create Mm -hmm. and just say they can use it, but I get a cut of the ad revenue. Which makes it more fun for everyone in one way, <laughs> but then it also becomes like exploitive in another. <laughs> so there is a trade-off. <laughs> there are lots of trade-offs. The other really important part of understanding why fandoms are so important or engaging to people is that they're also frequently places for individuals to make friends with people who share a special interest, even if those people are at a great distance away. So it can be a really great mental health boost to people. And the same also applies to lots of fans coming into fandom because they are part of an underrepresented group in mainstream media. Mm -hmm. And fan space gives them room to find and establish themselves within a community of people who share that status. Yep. And then speaking of trade-offs. This new and much more more visible access to fans and fan behaviors has also brought a few issues to light. So it's kind of important to understand the context of why some of these things are such an issue because this isn't exclusive to any one piece of media or the fans of any one TV show or movie or what have you. This has been a problem for like as long as people have been people. (laughs) But in terms of looking at it from the perspective of academia studying fans and fan behavior, a lot of the people who do that writing are also in the category of super fan at least nowadays. But initially, that wasn't the case. And it was a lot of people like peering into this strange world and suggesting that it was full of psychological dysfunction. And that is an impression that we still see conveyed to some extent in mainstream portrayals of fans in different contexts. Mm -hmm. And people within the field of fan studies tried very hard to advocate for like the benefits of participating in these cultures to try to compensate for that. Unfortunately, this element of psychological dysfunction is still present within different fan spaces. And the fact that it's all being exposed on social media makes it much easier to see. So in terms of understanding, okay, where's the line on gauging the behavior of fans and recognizing like, what's a little off, but okay. And what is a problem? We have to consider different things that are portrayed maybe as still bad in mainstream society. So for example, things that are just like a little bit quirky or over-enthusiastic, but largely harmless. Like for example, wanting to know seemingly unimportant details about a character, like what's their favorite color or something that like doesn't necessarily matter to your enjoyment of the content on your screen, but you really like the character and you just want to know. This is something that even 
actors who participate in like major fandoms and fan conventions have belittled William Shatner in particular has really famously insulted his own fans on Saturday Night Live by telling them all that they were like sad social misfit losers and they needed to get a life. Hmm. And he's said that in other contexts that weren't a joke. So that attitude, because it was broadcast on Saturday Night Live, a form of media, has been out there in the public consciousness ever since. And because of that, there's a lot of feeling like any behavior that someone might engage in as a super fan is considered problematic or considered a sign of dysfunction. It is not. (laughs) Correct. However, there are a number of things that actually are a problem. And they are a problem specifically because they are destructive or harmful to others. So first example here, if you use racially coded language to talk about a character or a romantic pairing you dislike, and people tell you that that's harmful, and you persist in it anyway, that is a form of harassment. Another kind of harmful example is cropping, manipulating, photoshopping photos of actors, either in order to like make fun of their appearance or to sexually objectify them. Also not cool is obviously sending harassment to actors, writers, directors, and like people involved in producing the content that you are a fan of, which can be in the form of demands for production or casting changes or baseless accusations. And obviously using language that is derogatory in any way also qualifies as inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Another issue, which I think maybe some people are less aware of, is it is harmful to violate the security protocols on the set that you are visiting in order to go get a selfie with an actor or meet them and have a little chat. Aside from the fact that that is a safety issue, it also frequently ends up causing delays in production. And in one example that we looked at from a documentary about fan behavior, fans stopping an actor who was on set cost the production over $2,000. So if you are actually a fan of someone, respect the fact that when they're at work, they are working. Mm -hmm. And then the last couple of things that are on the list are related specifically to fans and other fans. One behavior that I have seen repeatedly over at least the last 15 years, possibly longer, is groups of fans actively choosing to censor other people via things like the report abuse function on a site Mm -hmm. or taking it to the next level, sending death threats and hate messages because a fan makes a piece of creative work containing a story element they don't like. And then, because this also happens a lot, groups of fans swarming other people, which is a form of intimidation that's also frequently used by right-wing hate groups on the internet, in order to send threatening or rude messages and intimidate people to self-censor, often over just very basic disagreements that then escalate. And that takes us to Supergirl specifically and the fandom behavior. The fandom negativity has gotten so extreme that in the past month, multiple cast members have publicly commented on it. Kyler Lee at a con in a panel gave a bit of a speech about how affected she was by fan behavior online. And then Nicole Maines, Sam Whitwer, and Ozzy Tesfai, who plays Kelly Olsen, have all tweeted about that discussion in support of it. And Nicole said, tying to this idea of harassment, 
it's not just fandom drama. It's been an issue of ongoing harassment that we've been trying to address for a while. And we were happy to have gotten the opportunity to do so because they were asked about it specifically. And Ozzy tweeted and said that she was sorry. And she said, my frustration with this toxicity goes with what I see being said to the majority of wonderful fans we adore. It's why I'm not staying silent anymore. I have your backs just as much as you've had mine. So it's an issue with harassment directed at the actors and also other members of the production team. And it's an issue of harassment and toxicity between the fans. And they have recognized this. Yeah. Well, and in addition to that, this kind of group public stance against it has been brewing for a while because Makad said something about it a few weeks ago because a couple of cast members specifically were getting very vocally harassed. And Andrea Brooks, who plays Eve, has mentioned it a couple of times. But it's important to note nearly every single core member of the cast has been harassed by fans since the show was announced in 2015. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the COD plays Jimmy Olsen, James Olsen, and he's not white. <laughs> and there's a lot of backlash for that and racism. And he's also not a scrawny nerd. <laughs> also true. <laughs> An upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> But there was a lot of racist harassment directed at him since his debut. Before it. it Pretty much since the casting announcement. Yeah. And not only that, as the romantic storyline with Kara increased, there were a lot of extremely vulgar racist comments left on the show's Twitter, on Instagram, and elsewhere. And that has continued anytime he is put with anybody. Yeah, it sure has. And from various groups of fans. That's not any particular... Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> racism is... Um... <laughs> racism crosses all lines. Mm. So we've had that. And then Melissa has also been dealing with her own brand of creepy sexist harassment pretty much since the start of the show. Like, I always have in mind this clip of Jeb Bush when he was running for president. <sighs> commenting on how she was like real good looking or whatever and i was like please stop talking and i still wish that you would today (laughs) yes still do (laughs) and that's been a continued thing for her as well and also because she's the lead character there's just this extra layer of scrutiny that comes with everything she does and when the show was new you had a lot of people gatekeeping who were fans of the superman franchise and being hypercritical of how the show adapted comic stories and how she played the character versus superman type things so in terms of the like comic book stories and relation to superman anytime you go on youtube still today and there's like a fight scene in particular or like a Superman scene or something like extra comic-y, you'll see the same kind of comments. <laughs> They're still doing it and I guess they haven't learned that they don't like the show <laughs> and gone away. Yeah. And then related to Kyler, like when she talked about this, she specifically mentioned seeing comments about her colleagues, herself, what have you. There are frequently, and this has happened since season two, but it's been pretty consistent, comments demanding that Alex should be written out of the show because why did she have to be a lesbian? There's complaints that the character of Alex Danvers doesn't add anything to the story or that like she's too emotional. And that's like in addition to the complaints on the other side that like she's not gay enough. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, if you're pissing off people on both sides, I guess you're doing something (laughs) right. Um, She's like a person. It's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And related to that issue of queer phobia, 
we have Nicole Nains, who is trans and is playing the very first live-action trans superhero. And in a sort of disappointingly expected way, there are transphobic comments in the show's official posts everywhere on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, some of them are really, really offensive. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the cast gets harassed regularly, although definitely to a lesser extent than some of these major characters. David's been harassed by fans on social media. Jeremy was harassed to the point that he shut down his Twitter temporarily. Chris Wood gets harassed a lot, even now that he's no longer on the show. So does Floriana Lima. Raul Coley, who was a guest star for one episode... was harassed so much that he talked about it in an interview and compared the reception he got from Supergirl fans to the behavior of British sports fans who are considered criminals. So that's not a good look. And in response to this harassment, the actors have significantly, notably, Mm. dialed back their social media use. Yeah. Kyler, in that speech that she gave at the con, talked about how that was the reason that she hasn't been as active lately. Melissa Benoist used to interact on Twitter in early season one of Supergirl. She did? Yeah. (laughs) And it's quite the difference, even, you know, coming from a show like Glee. Yeah. (laughs) Somehow after she came to Supergirl. It got worse. It got worse. And so we have the actors who have really dialed back their social media use. And then we also have writers for the show who have deleted their Twitter accounts. And then on top of that, and this is something that I think a lot of fans forget, is we've also, within in this fan space for the show Supergirl, seen relatives of cast members have to shut down their accounts. We have seen friends and family members of cast members being harassed and asked invasive personal questions or had accusations thrown at them. They are not people in the public life. There is no reason that you should ever be doing that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that said, where the heck is all of this coming from? Like, Mm -hmm. there have to be reasons why people do this in theory. There usually are (laughs) sort of reasons for things. Yeah. So the reason that you tend to see this sort of escalation to extreme fan behavior is that when we engage with media or celebrities, we create these things called parasocial relationships. The quick The quickest way to understand this is if you ever watched Dora the Explorer as a child, you know the parts when Dora stops and stares at you and asks you a question and then like waits and gives you time to respond. If you answer, that's considered a form of a parasocial relationship because you are directly engaging with that media. It's cute because it's little children, but it does sound weird. But essentially, the Dora thing is a good way of conceptualizing it because a parasocial relationship is a one-way relationship between a fan and like a content creator or an actor, what have you, that is sometimes perceived as mutual because of the amount of emotional energy that you as the fan are putting into it. And so it's interesting, too, because historically it was impossible possible for these relationships to become two-sided, kind of like how in episode 403, the flashback with Ben Lockwood, where he comments to Lena that it's really hard to get a hold of her as like a random citizen. Mm -hmm. And she's like, yeah, that's by design. 
Um, <laughs> most media agencies were structured in the same kind of way to protect their talent from that kind of potentially unpredictable social interaction mm. and to discourage that kind of overly intense attachment. But in this era of social media, it is now possible to have an illusion of two-way relationships between fan and content creator. And the best way to describe it is essentially as like a digital relationship <laughs> because the celebrity or the influencer or the person who works in the crew can like or reply to fan comments. They can answer direct messages. They can reshare cool fan art or funny videos and stuff like that. And so it makes it very easy in the mind of you as the fan to start feeling like there's a really personal relationship there because you have such an emotional closeness to either the material or the people creating the material and you're paying so much attention to all of the content that they put out on social media and all of their actual consumable content that you develop this sense that you know them really, really well mm -hmm. without recognizing necessarily that they don't know anything about you really in return. Yeah. So you have like a situation where you've built up an emotional connection and it's flowing in one direction and you feel like you've done the work to... Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> to establish this relationship, but you haven't because the other person isn't involved. Exactly. It's like, but I say happy birthday to you every year. And like, <laughs> I told you I was sorry when your pet died. This and like, is what all I do with my real friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you treat it very much the way you would any other personal relationship that you have, but you're trying to catch the attention of someone who has maybe thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of interactions coming at them every day. They can't possibly have enough physical time to devote to reciprocating all of those emotions or interactions or getting to know every single person on that level. And so thanks to social media and the digital age and the structure of how all these apps work, these kinds of digital parasocial relationships can lead to internet dependency, among other psychosocial problems, because you're constantly checking your device for notifications. You're constantly looking to see what the person is doing. You're devoting all your mental attention to it, to the detriment of maybe like the relationships in your real waking life. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously not good when it gets to that point. No. <laughs> I mean, so I've been told. <laughs> I don't have a problem. It's fine. <sighs> but related to that, actually, with this idea of parasocial relationships and how fans perceive them, it's also really interesting to look into interviews with actors and how they perceive these relationships. There was a documentary that I watched. It's called Superfans. And the actors who talked about this in the documentary said they actually don't mind interacting with fans who are enthusiastic about the content that they are in, whether it's movies or TV, hmm. because they also love the content. Like, that's why they do their job. But that all of the actors who were interviewed in this documentary said it was unsettling when they'd meet people who were really intensely interested in them as a person and were really overly familiar with them, like telling them really personal stuff with no warning or expecting like a greater physical intimacy than maybe they should have without mm. asking. Stuff like that. Stuff that happens when you think that you have more of a relationship with 
a person than you do. Exactly. And that's understandable for reasons related to like how the brain works. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It turns out that your expectations for reality shape your perception of reality and it can backfire. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. So I had to read this book several years ago by this neurobiologist named Samir Zeki. And he was doing research on how the brain expresses things like creativity and happiness. And one of the interesting findings in the book was that when our experience of something, an event or interacting with a person, doesn't live up to the mental picture that we've invented for it, we can actually trap ourselves in what he describes as a state of permanent dissatisfaction. Bleak. (laughs) Bleak, but definitely also captures a little bit of what is happening sometimes in these interactions in fan spaces that are so negative. Yeah. Because when you have people who are emotionally investing so intensely in a piece of media or in a person they admire, and then they develop these ideas about that relationship or the kinds of content that that person should be in or how a story should go and the reality doesn't match it, they might freak out a little bit. (laughs) And you saw that a few times within the context of Supergirl as a show. Like, for example, when the show moved from CBS to CW, a lot of people were very apprehensive about the shift in the tone. And then the tone and the focus of the show really did shift. And the show bled viewers for a while because what was being presented didn't match the expectation that people came in with after seeing season one. And then similarly, you had a lot of people who were unhappy with season three, specifically because of the way several different characters' interpersonal relationships were resolved in season three. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was just really rooted in the fact that it's very difficult for us as human beings to let go of an expectation once we've set it. Other subgroups of fans who you tend to see do this include people who've maybe stopped watching the show or never actually watched it and are just basing their impressions on what they've heard from friends or seen in like out of context little video clips or GIFs or memes. Or in the cases I mentioned earlier with the YouTube scenes, a bunch of them had their expectations rooted in the comics or in other superhero media. Yeah. And then related to that, and like you saw this a lot with the Harry Potter series, you get the people who came to the new adaptation of it having already read the book, or in the case of Supergirl, people who read like all the comics and are really big comics fans coming in with an expectation in their mind of how those characters should be or how the story should play out. And then having a really strong emotional reaction when the story doesn't go the way they expect or a character behaves in a way that's different than what they thought they were going to get at the start. Mm. And you have a lot of psychology-related thoughts to how all of this is working inside the brain. (laughs) I do. So you talked a bit about how having a mental construct of something, of this piece of media, has affected people and how they have come to enjoy or not enjoy it. But mental constructs in a person can affect any range of things and everything, essentially. Mm. One understanding of a mental construct is the internal working model, which is a cognitive framework comprising mental representations for understanding the world, self, and others. So basically, we all have like little pictures of the world in our heads, and that informs how we understand new information. Mm. So everyone has an internal working model. 
And this mental construct model is based in attachment theory, which describes how the relationships that we form in our early childhood inform our later expectations and interpretations of events and inform a person's behavior. So basically, your relationship with your primary caregiver influences how you see the world. And so this is sort of an individual psychology concept, but we can kind of take it and use it to understand the group of fandom and how they perceive certain things, not just the source media itself, Supergirl, but other people in the fandom and the actors and themselves. So we have these three models within the internal working model concept, a model of the self as valuable, a model of the self as effective when interacting with others, and a model of others as being trustworthy. It sort of forms a full picture of how the world works. So if we take the model of the self as valuable and think about it on a personal level for an individual's psyche, it describes the level of self-esteem someone might have. And on a fandom level, this concept of the self as valuable can have a positive expression in the concept that, you know, the creators of this media we're fans of hope that we are enjoying ourselves and they want to send us positive messages. So we're valuable in that sense. But a sort of distortion to this model is the idea that creators are writing just to make the audiences happy and often very specific audiences. There's a sort of fallacy the idea that the Women Who Love Women fans are the biggest audience, the primary audience for any given television show, and that the writer should write for them in mind specifically, or else the show will fail because they'll have disappointed their main viewer base. Well, and it's not just those viewers either. You saw kind of the same thing with Caramel and Monel fans, kind of making the same argument that they were responsible for ratings going one way or another, or I saw other people use the phrase, we're the silent majority who secretly like everything, we just don't say it. And that one's always interesting as someone who likes looking at statistics and numbers. And is a nerd. <laughs> and is a nerd to see if these things are true. Because often these kind of like conventionally held notions that get spread throughout a fan space have no basis in fact. <laughs> Fake news. Uh, <laughs> And so in this particular case with Supergirl, I did like a very basic social network analysis just to get a sense of how big this subgroup of fans is on the platforms that they tend to congregate. And at most, they're like one and a half percent of the total audience of the show, which is in no way a significant number. <laughs> it's very much based in what the fandom looks like. And they assume that because everywhere they look, they see people like them, that this is reflected of the greater viewer base. Yeah, and that's a danger with all social media, not mm -hmm. specific just to being a fan of a television show. This is a danger in like real life about anything. This is why you get people who believe that like the earth is flat or there is no such thing as climate change. Hmm, yeah. Because there has been a push on a part of media platforms across a lot of different industries to personalize everything and basically only show you stuff that is less 
like the things you've already interacted with. And that definitely creates an echo chamber as far as being exposed to new ideas or accurate information in some cases. Mm -hmm. But speaking of maybe logical flaws that occur because of miscommunications or poor understandings of like how the media should be working, there's also this distortion where fans feel a sense of ownership over the characters and content that they don't have. Mm -hmm. And this perception that fans are collaborators in the creation of the media itself. And so partly because of social media, there is this misperception and sometimes writers or showrunners, not of this show, but of other shows, will feed this misunderstanding of the relationship between fan and content creator by interacting in ways that imply that they are doing things specifically for particular fans or subgroups of fans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this sort of perception on behalf of the fans and not by any means just the Supergirl fans <laughs> that the fan creator relationship dynamic is that of someone who provides a service and someone who is a customer. Sort of like mm. you are requesting that they do something and then they they have to do it. Yes, they, <laughs> and the customer is always right. Also an idea that ties into that. When in fact it is a creator-consumer interaction where the creator makes something and then if you would like to have it, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like it's out there and once it's out there, that's it. You can take it or leave it. <laughs> and this idea that fans are collaborative partners can be shown in, in the sort of tendency for people to make petitions as of late to like change aspects of a show or to bring back a show. Specifically, we had the Game of Thrones series finale that a lot of people were displeased with and they created a petition that got a fair bit of um, like a million signatures or something close to it. Yeah. And the point of it was to get HBO to reshoot the finale. <laughs> Just go back and change it. Yeah. You know, because that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So obviously from a practical standpoint, they're not going to reshoot it because there's no gain and it costs money. But also from a creative standpoint, the showrunners and producers made the decisions they made for a reason, presumably. Like they did in fact want the finale to go the way that it did. I mean, yes, they clearly wanted things to go the way that they did because they had a very long time to decide. But more to the point, as someone who produces creative work, you cannot open yourself up to conceding those kinds of things because that is opening the door to censorship. Hmm. Maybe it doesn't seem like censorship from the point of view of a fan who's like, that was an unsatisfying ending. But when you have like a million angry people saying you need to do this differently or else, that is an attempt at censorship. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and this ties into my my point, which is that media is a form of communication. Mm -hmm. The point of it is to set an idea forth and share it with people. So it stops being communication when you're just fulfilling a request. Yeah, then it's just a service being delivered. Exactly. Which is not how it works. And if you are a fan, it's not unlikely that you are also a creator yourself. Perhaps you write fic, you do fan art, make fan videos, write posts, even do meta. Make memes. Make memes. Those are all forms of creative communication. And if someone is just telling you what to do, then it's not fun anymore and there's no real point to it. And I can tell you as someone who's done research on a creative output by fans, there's a whole lot of disclaimers that say things like, if you don't like it, don't read it. So you should really comprehend the idea of not wanting to censor people's creative output. Yeah. And then, you know, tying back into this 
idea, the model of the self is valuable. We talked about like, you have to do what I want. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about how there's this perception that the viewers are the most important thing in the creative process for one reason or another. This concept is particularly unsettling when it's directed at people like individual people and particularly actors. The idea that I'm your fan actor, therefore you owe me personal content, personal information or selfies or whatever it is, your attention or your appearance at this event. Mm, Yeah. Basically the concept is that as a fan, they are providing you like a service. Like I support you, therefore I'm owed this from you. Which is not how it works. (laughs) Yeah. And I will say this as someone who has been at multiple events that were gatherings with fans from the show, there is an uncomfortable lack of recognition that the actors are people who have their own emotional lives and needs that deserve to be respected. Mm-hmm. It was really funny. I was at one event and I, I actually yelled at people. Um, <laughs> but I was standing next to like a dad who was there chaperoning his kids. And he looked at me kind of surprised and was like, you must be a parent or a teacher. And I was like, and you must be realizing that you should also say something to these people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just very frustrating because there's just this level of focus on oneself and your own needs as a fan. And that's more important than displaying courtesy to the person you're a fan of or making sure they are comfortable with however you're choosing to interact with them or the things you're telling them and considering whether or not that's appropriate or if it's the appropriate time or place for it. And that's definitely been a problem and has contributed to some of the response we're getting from the actors. Yeah. So those are the ways that the model of the self is valuable can be kind of distorted in fandom. And that takes us to the next model, which is the model of the self is effective when interacting with others. On a personal level, this is basically the idea that like, if I seek love or attention, will I be rejected or embraced? And individuals can obviously vary. And obviously, a healthier person has the model that expects that they will be accepted and loved versus a more unhealthy model, which would be that they will be rejected. With fandom sort of framing this for that group, we have sort of positive behavior related to how effective a person is when interacting with others, which is like when a creator or an actor allows a person access to them, responds to them, appears in front of them, you know, someone with a positive model will, you know, be polite or appreciative and respect that they have boundaries, as we've just discussed. I mean, Vivi and I personally have had several very positive interactions with one of the writers of the show, Eric Carrasco, who's been kind enough to give us some behind the scenes information on Twitter, which has been great for the podcast. (laughs) Which has been super helpful. Yes. (laughs) Pun intended. Uh. And we always try to be appreciative and respectful because especially in this fan environment, it's just particularly cool. Well, it was nice that he was interacting with people at all, considering that he had people kind of swarm him a little bit over the Lockwood storyline. Yeah, he handled that fairly well, I think. Yeah, I think he was mostly kind of concerned that people thought they were promoting Nazism. Yes, 
Eric has had a few interactions with fans where he's tried to either figure out where the, you know, cognitive distortion happened or to correct a misconception. But that sort of takes us to the fandom distorted view. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which can occur. We have the idea that like if you tweet someone often enough, they will change the show. <laughs> Or they will reply to you, you know. Which again ties back to that problem of developing an internet dependence. Yeah. And then also, of course, ties back to the problem that we talked about earlier of harassment. And we mentioned, of course, how cruel people can be in trying to push forth whatever their goal is, wanting some plot point to occur or to not occur in the show. Or wanting to like change casting decisions. Yes. But then we also have stuff like overly affectionate or like sexual tweets at the actors. Yeah. Uh, those are creepy. Mm -hmm. If you wouldn't like it, if someone did it to you on the street, you absolutely should not be doing it to a stranger on the internet. Yes, that's actually a good guide. Because if we go from a platform like Tumblr, where you sort of don't expect the actors to see what you're writing about their characters, and then people are saying the same things directly to the people. Yeah. And maybe there are some <laughs> lines that got blurred along the way. But a clear guide is if you would feel uncomfortable if a stranger said that to you don't do it <laughs> should be a guide to any interaction on the internet really but yeah but then we also have stuff that's just like really overzealous requests for any number of sorts of information or like updates on things is x character going to be okay like tweeting the writers or the actors or like, when are you coming back to the show over and over again? Yes, yeah, so like a specific example of this is less than a year ago, Laura Benanti made a tweet talking about how she was sad because one of her colleagues from Broadway died. Mm -hmm. And someone thought that was the appropriate place to ask her when she'd be coming back to Supergirl. Yeah. Only because she made a tweet, which meant they knew she was near her phone with no regard for the fact that she was like mourning the fact that someone she knew had died of cancer. Mm -hmm. It was extremely insensitive. And people commented on it to that person and were like, why did you think this was an okay time to bring yeah. this up? And the amount of mental contortion they came up with to justify it was both funny and upsetting at the same time. Mm -hmm. And this happens all the time to all of the actors. <laughs> There's sort of like two things at play here, which is the distortion of thinking that you will in fact be effective if you tweet them this way, and then just the compulsion to do it. I think in a lot of cases, it seems like it's rooted in just being anxious about something and trying mm. to relieve that anxiety. And, you know, if we talk about stuff like internet dependency, yeah, <laughs> using that as a way to cope with an emotion. But like, if you're looking for ways to relieve that anxiety, just a tip to sort of help with that is like ignore some of the weird rumors that you might hear or like take the steps to fact check. It's a more sound route to getting the truth and then also not being as anxious because it's just unlikely that you're going to get the direct answers that you want from an actor or a writer, especially about like future plot points. And one other thing related to harassment in the form of like excessive messaging on Twitter or Instagram is that there are times when it's being done in a competitive way 
within subgroups of fans in order to kind of gain social status because the person replied to you or somebody got invited to be in like a private group chat with an actor or and and I ran into this as well working professionally in the dance industry this was something that would happen especially among the younger pros where they would be competing against each other for the number of likes and stuff like that and I saw it in this fandom people competing to see like will they click on my live stream of this or or like my photo, fighting each other about it. Mm. And sometimes the talent and the creative people involved in the show inadvertently feed it without realizing it. Mm. And that doesn't help either. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because that ties back into the idea of the model of the self as effective when interacting with others and like, uh-huh. trying to be more effective and maybe having this idea that you have to do these things in order to be a good fan or like have a social standing. Yeah. Or to gain respect or authority among peers in the fan community. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even necessarily have to be about the actor or the writer or whoever at all. Yeah, that sort of need of like social approval Mm. on several levels. And then also related to the idea of the self as effective when interacting with others, we have one of the more technical aspects of interacting with others and a distortion related to that is the overestimation of how well one can read people. So we have fandom who sort of by design at this point, especially on platforms like Tumblr, where where visuals are a key component of the mm. fan experience and fans will often pay very close attention to actors or characters, their expressions, their actions, and the words that they say. Mm. And yet we'll see that they'll often misinterpret those things. And it kind of reminds me of something called the empathy paradox, which pops up with people who have borderline personality disorder. I have a quote here. It says, they are good at reading emotions in others due to paying extra attention to what is going on around them and in their environment and the people that are in it, but this information tends to get distorted along the way, and this causes the individual to misinterpret those emotions as negative, which leads to a greater likelihood of reacting negatively in situations. Yeah, well, like, this is an issue that comes up in people with borderline personality disorder, but you do also tend to see it in younger adults who don't have a lot of necessarily experience reading people in many diverse situations, and so they rely on what they know and apply it broadly, Mm -hmm. which then leads to being wrong more frequently because you just don't have a big data sample. Uh. Yeah. It's kind of like I like to think about Rainey's experience. Yes. And <laughs> trying to understand people's actions and how it's a developing process. And then other psychology related thing to go with this is that there's different studies that I have come across when doing social psychology talking about how people use the internet and how that affects behavior. Number one, we're inherently prone to read text as more negative than if we hear the same words spoken out loud. Because when it's text, we have the emotional context stripped away and our brain automatically, for whatever reason, just takes neutral and turns it negative, takes negative and turns it horrible (laughs) and takes positive and turns it like questionably okay. Um, like you know how people read a a sentence with a period at the end as being like you're in big trouble yeah it's that yeah but with everything (laughs) (laughs) well that ties into like you know cognitive distortions in terms of maybe people with like childhood abuse Mm, tend to be hyper aware of people too yeah the idea is that if it's not positive if it's just neutral it's interpreted as negative especially if you do something and you don't get a like extra excited response Mm -hmm. if it's just like a regular good response 
response when you usually get a really positive response, then it's a disappointment. True. And then that goes back to what we said earlier about expectations. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the whole concept is that your framework is influencing how you're interpreting all these events. Exactly. And then the other important thing to recognize, too, is that one of the really great things about digital space is that it's great for people who struggle with different elements of social fluency. And so on the one hand, it's easier to express yourself when you maybe have some of those kinds of issues. But on the other hand, it can become a little bit of a crutch. And in trying to interpret this visual data about like facial expressions, body language, what have you, you may do it inaccurately. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing too is that a number of different studies have found this looking across multiple social media platforms. And people who tend to post frequently and to make posts about themselves personally tend to have a higher correlation of issues like depression. And that also affects the way that you interpret material and you tend to interpret comments made at you more negatively than someone who is healthy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like taking a specific example in terms of people's expressions and also like intentions behind actions, which is another kind of reading that you can do. We have the San Diego Comic-Con event from 2017 when Jeremy Jordan and the cast of Supergirl were singing an impromptu summary of season two. And Jeremy sang about Kara and Lena's relationship and sang that they're only friends. They're not going to get together. They're only friends in a very like dramatic fashion. And people were very offended and very hurt for sort of different reasons. There's the aspect of it, which is like alienating your fans and sort of mocking them in that sense. But then there was also a group of queer women fans who were very hurt by the comments because of the intentions that they read behind it, which were not that Jeremy was sort of frustrated with the Supercorp fans because their behavior had been very intense and directed at, you know, Jeremy, who plays Wynn, who was not involved in the Supercorp ship. And then they're frequently very intensely talking about an aspect of the show that they are not actually pursuing. So there was some frustration behind that joke. But the interpretation of it was that there was homophobia involved, that the idea that these two women getting together was laughable, which is a negative and inaccurate interpretation of the event. And then we also had people in terms of expressions. This is a common problem in fandom, but then also with like fake news in general, Mm. where people will take select footage of something and manipulate it. We just had that whole issue with Nancy Pelosi. And in fandom, we have people for like recreation making gifts of the show, slowing things down. And in this situation with the Comic-Con, Katie was in the room, Katie McGraw, and she was laughing and she had tears in her eyes from the laughter. And because of this like internal working model and this idea that people were being rejected, essentially. Yes. The narrative that they had about what Jeremy had intended and who Katie was as a person, they interpreted her laughter as uncomfortable laughter and her tears of tears of sadness, which I'm pretty sure was a joke originally, but people will interpret the media that you create. Well, because you can't tell the tone unless someone tells you. Yeah. 
And then just some other examples of a narrative influencing how people interpret other people's actions. We had people assuming that Kyler wasn't on social media as much because she was unhappy with the show, like in season four. Turns out that was a lie. Yes. She (laughs) She corrected that. Yes. But that's an issue in and of itself is that Kyler has talked about fan behavior before, Mm. but it was either ignored or twisted because of the things that people wanted to believe. And then there's stuff like the narratives people have come up with about how some actors feel about other actors and like feuds. Oh, this was rampant in season three. Yes. Often in very funny ways. I got some of the weirdest asks and direct messages about people wanting to know if rumors were true or trying to tell me rumors that they thought I should share. It was a wild time. (laughs) But that wraps up our discussion of the model of the self as effective when interacting with others within fandom. And now we have a model of others as being trustworthy, which on a personal level, like a positive version of this is basically the idea that people aren't like wholly terrible and untrustworthy, uh, but they're also not perfect. Within that range is usually a safe bet. And a distortion on that would be maybe either believing that people are generally terrible or believing that people are generally perfect. Lena Luther. <laughs> An example. A victim of emotional abuse. Yes. And this sort of either terrible or perfect and perhaps like cycling of that going from having someone on a pedestal to then they are terrible. Literally, Lena. <laughs> is something that we see with people who have borderline personality disorder or also people who have complex post-traumatic stress disorder just related to childhood abuse. Hmm. And they share some traits. So that's interesting to think about. <laughs> in relation to Lena. (laughs) And an issue that people who have borderline personality disorder or borderline personality disorder traits will have to grapple with is sort of black and white thinking. And this is related to all aspects of their lives, the pedestal to terrible concept with people either or there, um, but also like self-image and tending toward separating things into two binary groups into extremes. And dialectical behavior therapy in that a therapist will work with the patient on accepting that two seemingly contradictory ideas can come together and form sort of a gray area, such as the ideas that a person can have really positive traits and then really rather negative traits and that they can exist in one person without that person being either really just perfect or a terrible person. And this is sort of the exact situation that we often come in contact with in fandom and a distortion that occurs within this group. There's that trope of the cinnamon roll who can do no wrong, which is the idea that someone is perfect and pure, purely good. And then there's this word that people have been using as of late, demon to describe people who have been canceled. So fandom will often like hype up the positive qualities of their quote unquote fave to godlike levels. That sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like there was a plot line about that. In the show. In season three. Yeah. Like that was a whole storyline. <laughs> <laughs> yes. These fanatics. <laughs> That's where the word fan comes from. Hmm. It's almost like we did an episode about fans and fanatics called Faith and Supergirl. And then on the flip side, we have the idea that the intentions of of writers or celebrities that you don't like are, of course, negative. Some examples are like, this actor that I don't like is actually jealous of my fave, you know, tying back into the idea of like, 
spinning a narrative. And then we also have the writers don't care about the quality of the show, which is interesting because that has popped up a lot recently regarding Game of Thrones, which it's just interesting because Eric Carrasco, who we mentioned, who's a writer of the show. We are not being paid by Eric Carrasco <laughs> to promote him, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> like- right. But he expressed frustration on Twitter with this idea. He said, like, you can hate what they did, but he was not fond of the idea that they just didn't care about the quality, which, I mean, if we talk about reading people's intentions. <laughs> that one's always funny with the reading of intentions because frequently fans don't even bother to like find out who the writers are. They just kind of blame this nameless entity <laughs> called the writers. Yeah. This is a thing that came up in Supergirl too with a complaint about, for example, some of Alex's storylines being inauthentic or what have you. There is like an out lady gay writer on the show, mm-hmm. which I think people don't realize. Yeah. <laughs> or if there have been complaints about like the way they wrote some of the stories about immigration or like Latino families in some of Maggie's stuff. And like there are multiple Latino writers. Yes. <laughs> There's this assumption that the writers are like this room of white men. And I don't know where that came from because the writers room is like 50% women. Mm -hmm. And between that and like ethnic and racial minorities, nearly everyone is a minority. So (laughs) yeah. Incorrect. Um, The logic doesn't, but that goes back kind of to your point earlier about try to check facts before you dive into these really emotional, heated reactions to Mm -hmm. things. Just because it's seems like a room of writers who have done something that disappoints you would be white men. It doesn't mean it's actually true. It just means you have different opinions. <laughs> yeah. But going back to this idea of black and white thinking and like related to just events that occur, like things aren't disappointing that happen in the show. They're bad and they're wrong morally, which goes back into the, what I mentioned, cancel culture. It's like a one strike you're out kind of mentality that we'll see and like people will sort of blow the horn to announce that someone has done something problematic or that a show has done something problematic in, you know, their opinion. And it'll also often be a person or a source of media that was really hailed as like perfection. Like people were crazy about Jennifer Lawrence until they really weren't. (laughs) Yeah. And for Supergirl, the show season one was in some circles, obviously not in all of them, hailed as like this perfect show with no problematic elements that was like the epitome of progressive values. And then in season two, it, it fell hard for people and it went to the entire other extreme. And, and you know, studies show that extreme, like aka black and white thinking about emotions leads to emotions that are more likely to be extreme. So if you have this binary in your head, you are more likely to react in extreme matters, such as by harassing people online. Yeah, well, and it's important to point out that a lot of this also correlates to an effort on the part of the Russian propaganda operation to actually create this dichotomy and inflame those emotions on a broader social level, like not specific to fandom, but everyone was being exposed to that on every social media platform Mm -hmm. for like two straight years. So (laughs) that has something to do with it too. And then if you look at 
so many countries around the world right now have role models, and I use that term sarcastically, who embody that energy, essentially, and that spirit of petty argumentativeness. Hmm. And so that doesn't help either. Like there's been studies coming out of education journals specifically talking about a rise in harassment, bullying in schools as a result of the shift politically in the country and the world at large. Hmm. Yeah, it's related to extremism. Basically. <laughs> yeah, it's something that the season of Supergirl dealt with a lot. It did, and it made a lot of people feel like it hit a little too close to home, <laughs> which is a sign then that mm-hmm. they know that their behavior is inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, but related to, you know, the fandom and their behavior, this sort of dysfunctional antisocial type behavior is definitely like triggered by what I've been calling the disillusionment moment, which is a concept I came up with for the Faith and Supergirl episode when we talked about Kat and James and their reactions to Kara and falling Mm. and how Kat had a sort of more grounded expectation for how Supergirl would behave as a person that contained the possibility for failure because she took it upon herself and thought of it as her job to see the flaws in Supergirl so that she could say them first before other sources of media would pick her apart unfairly. And James, on the other hand, kind of did have her on a pedestal, I think, related to his relationship with Clark and Superman and how highly he thought of him. And he had to come to terms with the fact that Kara has anger inside of her. And he had a harder time grappling with that than Kat did, despite Kat's interaction with Kara while she was under the influence of Red K being fairly traumatic. And so you can see this sort of disillusionment moment happen across all of these instances of people being canceled or shows being like, quote unquote, canceled, not actually canceled. And in the fandom, situations like Floriana leaving the show, that was a disillusionment moment for Sandverse fans. And back in season two, when Caramel fans like sort of signed up for Car and Monel to be together pretty early on, and then I think like mid season in season two, when Cara criticized Monel, there was sort of a disillusionment moment there, and she got a lot of backlash. And then, as we've mentioned, the Comic Con event, which was a disillusionment moment for Supercorp fans, and there's some fans of Brainy who have become disillusioned with his character arc in this season because narratively he. He isn't doing what they expected him to, and he isn't in the ship in some cases that they expected him to be based on the comics. And in all of these cases, you had a lot of people who were justifiably sad or disappointed, but you also had other people who reacted very extremely and very negatively and took it out on either other characters in the show, actors, writers and showrunners, or other fans. Mm-hmm. And that's really the thing that the cast is tired of mm-hmm. because they've been putting up with it the original cast for four years now. Yeah. So maybe moving it then from like this individual level and looking at the cognitive model Mm -hmm. of how we as individual people form these thought patterns and how they might get distorted, looking at it from like a group perspective, why are people like this? Yeah, it's interesting because another aspect, you know, other than like basic cognitive misconceptions about yourself and how you interact with others and how others behave, there's this other aspect of sort of a shift in fandom, which is that there's like a disconnect between different groups of fans with regard to what fandom is supposed to be for and how you demonstrate that you care. (laughs) 
Yeah. One thing that I've noticed that's been a big change since like the days of internet (laughs) 1.0 back in the 90s is that the fan spaces for fans of media like TV and film and books have started to become much more akin to sports fandoms over the last decade or so. There's been this kind of increasing need for fans to kind of gravitate toward a team, if you will, either centered around a specific character or a pair of characters, and then to, like, win in a measurable kind of way, the way you'd see with people cheering for a sports team. Like, a lot of those comments that are like, you have to make this thing canon because I like it, or my ship is the most popular and we win all the fan polls. It's very similar to, like, the trash talking that you get between fans of different sports teams, Mm. which goes back to the comment about football hooligans who are extremist sports fans who actively harm other people. It's also interesting in terms of like if you think about media and media that you can win in we have like video games video games yes and there's been some unhealthy behavior there too <laughs> yes <laughs> but it's it's directly related to i think how much people think they have an influence over what's going to happen mm. yeah and like with sports they also think they have an influence but that's also a misconception <laughs> right it's like if i show up and wear my shirt inside <laughs> out and paint my face, the people will do what I want them to. If I tweet five times in a row (laughs) about this thing, then it will come true. One of the the biggest takeaways is, at least in the parts of fandom that I have observed for academic and research reasons and places I've participated in over two decades across multiple social media platforms, there's been this drifting away from the understanding that the things that you enjoy as a fan in your fan space do not have to, and in some cases really shouldn't, be in the original source media itself. Mm -hmm. Like a large part of why fandom exists and what's fun about it is playing with things that would make horrible storytelling choices if you put them on TV, <laughs> like getting into the mundane details of what someone has for breakfast every day. <laughs> yes. Well, also just you want to be able to create new stuff with the source material, even if it does look like something that would be great in a television show. A key component is just the creativity of it and the ability for you as a fan to communicate something different from what the show is communicating. Yeah, like one of my favorite things to do is be like, what would it be like if these characters were in the Harry Potter universe, which for a multitude of legal reasons is something the show could never do. (laughs) Yes. And that's also quite the interesting genre combination. (laughs) Look, it works. (laughs) It's funny that you say that because the show makes so many references to Harry Potter because it's just like a thing people of this age range know. Technically, there's also magic involved with the witches. There has been with uh, and Mixus Pitlick. Hmm. We could still get (laughs) (laughs) Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) But a large part of the enjoyment of fan creativity is getting to mix up things that are different genres than the show itself or borrow a character from another show that can't feasibly be in there or, you know, do some other random trope that you borrowed from a book or a movie or what have you. But to come in as a fan with the expectation that the show should change genres just because you had a fun idea Mm -hmm. is a relatively new thing. A real thing that we've seen. (laughs) A real thing we've seen many times. 
times. And also just, again, kind of goes back to this misconception that you as the fan are a collaborative partner who gets to make those kinds of suggestions, mm-hmm. especially in the context of these shows where even the people creating the Arrowverse are still beholden to DC Comics and have to get permission to do the storylines they're doing way ahead of time. So if something is happening the way it is, there's usually a lot of reasons that we will never know because they are buried under several layers of non-disclosure <laughs> contracts. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just a fact of life. Yes. Like, <laughs> there are some mysteries you cannot solve. Grappling with the unknown here at Supergirl Sadic. <laughs> Another aspect that relates to this concept of fandom as kind of a sport is the idea that criticism has become sort of like a game that people play a lot. Media criticism with any given piece of media, there is someone out there criticizing it and not necessarily in a constructive way. But it is interesting because before this kind of new wave of social media 2.0, there was still sort of like discourse around how to best be a fan and Mm -hmm. a split in how people behaved often. There's the sort of curative slash affirmational form of fandom, which is like basically guarding the canon and having an encyclopedic knowledge of everything that happened and knowing the most facts. And that also had a competitive nature to it and a sport-like nature to it in that the sport was gatekeeping and you would win by having the most knowledge and be able to like defeat others in trivia. Well, and that's interesting too, because the fan spaces where that tends to happen the most are male-dominated. Yeah. And then we have the transformative model of fandom, which is basically the more sort of creative. And I'm going to take the canon and alter it to do something I think is interesting with it. But it's interesting because both of these forms of fandom have a sort of criticism aspect to them with the curative slash affirmational model. There's a kind of nitpicking that occurs where you like win by pointing out all the failures that the writers, actors, or producers had, particularly something like cinema sins on YouTube where they count every sin that the piece of media has which are often actually incorrect <laughs> just saying <laughs> and so like instead of the enemy being like other fans for the curative slash affirmational model the enemy is now the creators and then the transformative nitpicking that occurs can look like sort of comprehensive fix it fix fan fiction that like goes through all of the plot points that the writer didn't like in order to prove a point that their ideas are better than what the canon is doing. So like instead of creating to fill a personal vision for fun or like just because you have a message that you want to get out, it's to defeat the canon. Yeah, basically. Sometimes even before the canon has aired. Yeah. And in terms of criticism being a game, we're saying that aiming your criticisms at the media makers is part of it, which is related to something we also see with sports fans. I have a quote here. Highly identified dysfunctional fans are particularly likely to report being verbally abusive to sport officials because these fans view confrontation as a natural component of the spectating experience. So it's part of what makes it fun. And a note that I thought 
thought was interesting was that sort of traditional dysfunctional sports fans may use alcohol to reduce their inhibitions and increase their confidence in acting in a dysfunctional, like confrontational and complaining manner, which is in a way sort of comparable to me to the shield of like relative anonymity and depersonalization that occurs in communicating online mm. and makes it easier for fans to act in this sort of antisocial way. Well, yeah, especially when you consider like one person I saw who was leaving transphobic comments all over the season finale posts on the official Twitter was like, go ahead and report it. I'm just going to make a new account. Mm. So there's also like the fact that it's disposable. Yeah. In the situation with alcohol, you don't fear the consequences as much. In the situation on the internet, the possibility of consequences has been reduced. But so we talked about fandom as sport. And then another concept that people have of fandom and how it should work is the idea of fandom as activism, which is kind of, I think, related to the goal that people have of like ethical consumption under capitalism and trying to make sure that the things that you consume are fully ethical and, you know, often go into extremes that the idea that the things you consume should be entirely pure ideologically. And then there's this idea of like discourse, like fandom discourse being a form of protest, which is not actually effectual. No, it is not. And this has been known to data analysts and scholars on different kinds of cultural issues for a while now. But I have a specific example from this very awesome book called Bastard Culture by a Dutch media scholar. And it basically says that we as people make a faulty assumption when we use social media that an increase in user participation, so like seeing more voices participate or seeing people use it more frequently, means that we have changed the power dynamic between ourselves as the fans communicating to like the actors or creators of a piece of media. And because we're seeing more of a thing, we vastly overestimate our own ability to affect change by essentially just sitting in our house and shouting into the void. Mm -hmm. That's related to the internal working model thing that we discussed of the concept of how effectual you are in interacting with others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Part of the reason for this is that people just generally don't understand very well how trends on different social media platforms work. They don't understand what sentiment analysis is or how machine learning functions. So much like Brainy, <laughs> machine algorithms are not intuitively good at sentiment analysis. And certain kinds of content are much harder to understand than others. So for example, sarcasm is really hard to teach a vocabulary list how to interpret. Things that are image-based, so emojis, memes, GIF reactions, can't really be interpreted because there's no easy way to understand what they mean in the context of a conversation. And a lot of different like popularity indexes also just use the frequency with which you say a word as part of the way they rank it. So if you're commenting a lot about something you don't like, it's actually going to rank higher than possibly a thing that you do like, but that you're ignoring because you're busy fixating on the other thing. And so that undercuts 
a message in terms of fans who are trying to be activists in a positive way. And one of the other problems that you run into is that a lot of these kind of online protests or petitions for change are directed at the wrong people, which then creates the impression that what's being said isn't worth taking seriously because no one put in the time to direct it to the appropriate channel. And then kind of related to that with uh, looking at like social media campaigns that people have done in this fandom specifically, I have seen instances where the messaging is undercut by a misuse of hashtags and specifically of like picking a hashtag to talk about a character or a ship or whatever without checking to see how it has already been used. And in one case, there was a group of fans that decided to use the hashtag missing to talk about a fictional character. But when you clicked on that tag and looked at all the other posts, they were for like lost pets Mm. and abducted children. And so that was like a really poor choice. And it creates this idea that you are disconnected from the other messages that you're sending because you're so hyper-focused on this one aspect of it. And you're missing the fact that you're not having the effect you wanted because of all these other factors. Mm. And then the other thing that you'll see pop up with relation to this idea that fandom should serve the purpose of activism is people using activism as an excuse or a shield, either consciously or unconsciously, for abusive behavior. And involved in that, of course, is having a personal agenda behind the comments about how progressive something is or someone is. It begs the question and should ask yourself if someone may have like reasons that they want their accusations to be true. And it's always helpful to even ask yourself that question. And as a result of this action of, of using activism as an excuse or shield for abusive behavior, we'll see that people are prioritizing certain forms of representation over others. So one example of this that's been an issue since season one is there have been attacks against both the character of James Olsen and Makad Brooks as an actor because of the female characters that he's stating. On the one hand, you get people who are openly racist and just don't like the idea of interracial relationships as they're depicted on screen. And then on the flip side, you had from the queer audience, people kind of attacking James with similarly racially coded language and excusing it as, well, he's a guy and I don't like a guy and I deserve representation in my headcanon. So I'm going to ship something else and come up with all these illegitimate reasons why the male love interest is a bad person that also have this unfortunate racist subtext, Mm -hmm. which some people were aware of and deliberately played up and other people weren't, but they just kind of saw it everywhere and they went with it. Mm. And you saw it in season one. You've seen it again in season three and season four. And you've seen similar attacks against the character of Kelly Olsen and Ozzy Tesfai in response to her character being cast as Alex's love interest. And that started pretty much immediately after the casting announcement was made and was again framed as, oh, we're not being racist. It's because we like this other ship better. But a lot of it's using like racially coded language that depicts the character of Kelly as bad versus 
Maggie's character as good. Mm -hmm. And there's a complete lack of either self-awareness or apology when that's explained to people. And that's part of the problem. And that's one of the things that the cast is trying to point out to people. Yeah. And then, you know, related to seeing these queer characters, we have the sort of unfortunate implications of the idea that the show is erasing Alex's sexuality because she isn't dating anyone at the time and isn't dating Maggie specifically. Which isn't the greatest message to send to your peers in the fan community who might be single. Yeah. But specifically, younger people who might be feeling socially isolated and have no one to talk to in their day to day life and they're making their connections through this fan space, telling them that they don't count because they're not dating somebody when you're out on your social media campaigning about how representation matters, think of the children, is a really contradictory message to send. Mm hmm. And then in terms of queer representation, we of course have Nia, who is the first trans superhero in live action, who is presently being overly criticized and devalued because her character is an obstacle to another ship that people have, which hasn't been supported in canon. Also related to this issue of queer representation specifically, there's been a misuse of the term queerbaiting, which is when a show intentionally teases characters as having like a potentially romantic relationship with no intention of ever following through. And generally, there is no explicitly queer representation anywhere in the piece of media. Mm -hmm. And this was really common up through like the early aughts in the States. But people within certain subsets of the Supergirl fandom and other adjacent fandoms will frequently misuse it and apply it to shows that have openly LGBT characters. So like clearly the creators are not opposed to the idea specifically because like their favorite character isn't one of those <laughs> and to go back to the idea of fandom as activism we'll say that you know it's like a political injustice that this particular character isn't the vehicle for the representation when there are in the case of supergirl multiple other characters who are and then other sorts of representation that are important mental health storylines which the show has done some great work with there were rather offensive comments about Kara's depression arc in season two and just mental health in general because her depression was triggered by the loss of Manel, who was not some people's favorite character. And people ended up using the I don't mind hashtag that Chris Wood created in order to help people to open up about their mental health. They were using it to criticize his character and then also to harass the fans who were presently using the hashtag to open up about something very personal and possibly painful for them. And then to round out the list of issues related to representation and things that fans criticize in an extreme or kind of abusive way, there's an amazing undercurrent of sexism in the way criticism is leveled at the current showrunners of the show. And this has been the case ever since the transition happened after Andrew Kreisberg was fired. Mm -hmm. And specifically, fans harass Jessica Queller, but not Robert Robner and hold her culpable for every bad decision they think has ever been made and that it's her fault that certain ships are not happening. And if you point this out to people, they will deny that there is any element of sexism to it, which is not helpful. <laughs> 
video tying into this greater idea of like using activism as an excuse for your behavior. Sam Witwer has tweeted about this specifically. He said, what's really sad is they know their behavior is awful. And then to stop from feeling guilty, they do a bunch of mental gymnastics where they make up a story where they have the right to lash out. I've been watching for a while. Ozzy and others have put up with too much. And this is very similar to what he said about Ben Lockwood, aka Agent Liberty, aka a white nationalist. He said he's got some reasons for having this much hate and venom, but everyone can do the mental gymnastics to think that they have a reason to hurt someone else. And it's just interesting that he's said the same thing about these two groups, because there are similarities with their ways of thinking. Grievance narratives, where the group of people have been wronged in some way, black and white thinking, and us versus them mentalities are all things that we've discussed about the fandom, but they are also prevalent in decidedly not liberal extremist communities like white nationalists and incels. Yeah. So not great ways of thinking. No, and that's not to say that all criticism is going to be extreme and you can only say positive things (laughs) about the show or else. Like, Mm -hmm. that's also a sign of living in a dictatorship. There is absolutely a place for constructive criticism. We definitely employ it when we feel like we need to. Mm But there's just this issue of thinking responsibly about the things that you put out into media spaces and recognizing that being on social media (laughs) means you are creating media every time you tweet, every time you post on Facebook, every time you use Instagram, every time you post a Tumblr or reblog something. And you are every bit as responsible for the way you make people feel with your media as content creators of the show you're watching are. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing that the cast has been really trying to stress is that they are consumers of our media and it is negatively harming them Mm -hmm. as a group. And that is negatively harming the overall fan experience. Yeah. And this idea that we as fan creators are responsible for the messages that we put out is something that we take seriously here at Supergirl's Attic. And that's kind of why we made this episode. Like we don't have like a fix all for all of these (laughs) problems, but recognizing some of the sort of negative cognitive patterns and negative behavioral patterns and misconceptions that the fandom has is a good first step in improving the experience. And, you know, related to that, it's important to be conscious of the possible agendas that people have and the arguments that they're making and their actions and the words that they're saying, keeping in mind that like progressive sounding language doesn't actually mean that the arguments themselves are progressive. Mm -hmm. It's important to check the facts and, and read sources and find out on your own what the truth is. And the source needs to be something better than like my friend with a blog. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And in terms of people with agendas, there are people out there who are trolls who are starting up arguments and spreading negative ideas who you can't argue with. And it's better not to signal boost these ideas by having a public argument with them. Mm. And kind of related to that, one other suggestion that we have is within your own media spaces, decide what your personal boundaries are and then be really clear with people 
who interact with you about the kinds of content that you maybe will or won't share. And once you've decided what that is, be consistent. Stick with it. Like, I personally won't discuss gossip about actors or production. I don't allow character bashing. And the other thing that I have a really hard line on is content that glorifies or sexualizes characters being violent because that's something that I see a lot of and I don't like it. So <laughs> yeah. I don't like the message that it sends, particularly to younger fans. So I don't share it. And sort of related to that, actually, it's important, not just in fandom, but generally to sort of manage your exposure to excessively negative content. Mm, yeah. The stress of dealing with it, if you don't, will wear you out otherwise. Yes. There's a way to absorb new information and keep up to date constructively. And then there's being awash in all of the negativity without reprieve. Yeah. And if you're someone who is very sensitive to those negative kinds of emotions, don't go seek it out either. Like, mm -hmm. that's definitely sometimes a problem. I'm picturing like some of the research that I do that infuriates me on a regular <laughs> basis. And I'm like, I can't do it for more than a day or mm -hmm. two because I'll just be nasty to everyone. <laughs> um, and then to go the really cheesy car route, try in your own fan space and on the platforms that you use to engage with people in a positive way as much as you can because that will help you integrate into a community of like-minded people. And it will also let you be kind of a role model and show other people that that's possible. <laughs> uh, so if you're more of a creative person and you like creating content, absolutely do that. But important with this, if somebody ends up telling you that a piece of your content, whether it's like you think it's the funniest joke ever, you made a cool meme, or you wrote this really tragic story, and someone who is a consumer of your media tells you that you hurt them in the same way that we as fans sometimes feel like shows or actors hurt us. Recognize that that's a learning experience and not a criticism of you as a person and take the appropriate steps to make it right. Don't get defensive. It's really hard not to, but it's important not to because we do tend, as we said, to assume the worst when people give us a criticism. But I saw the other day, Laura Bonanti, because she's like the only cast member who's left who still uses social media. <laughs> um, she is a fabulous role model of doing this. She made a joke the other day that in her mind was funny, but that was upsetting to some people. And she could have left it and she could have just said, well, you know, I do comedy. I can say what I want. But instead, she chose to acknowledge that she upset people. She deleted it immediately. And then she wrote like a whole apology and then moved on and said she would never do it again. And like, that's how you should respond to things like that. That's how everyone should respond to things like that. And if you're more of like a lurker type of person <laughs> and the thought of any level of confrontation like that scares you, <laughs> which after this whole conversation that we've had, it might have scared a lot of people. <laughs> there are ways to have a positive end of experience. Yeah, there are. Like you can absolutely leave meaningful feedback for people as much as you're comfortable because that can 
make somebody's day to mm-hmm. whether it's just a like, whether you reshare something, if you decide you want to leave a comment saying like, oh my gosh, I loved it or here's my favorite part. Caveat, write more, not a compliment. That stresses people out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Other things you can do to make your fan community a more fun place, which this is something I actually still do when I have time, is be welcoming to new people if you see them show up in a tag or following your blog or what have you. Be the kind of person who will help others find the really awesome comic that somebody drew or the funny video or a story that you really enjoyed. Those things, if they mean a lot to you, they're definitely going to mean a lot to another fan. So share. (laughs) It's always great to re-experience something vicariously (laughs) through new fans. So they'll often come in with like a lot of enthusiasm and you're like, oh, you must be a new fan. (laughs) Let me share in that energy. And kind of related to that, talking about like enjoying things vicariously with others, try to make events with other people that you know, like digital events to help people get to know each other or participate in an activity. Like we did that silly thing with the Parks and Rec gifts that one time with like, who would say this Leslie Nope quote, Kara or Alex? Um, (laughs) But you can host like a rewatch night or the Sunshine Protection Force Network that we host occasionally does have public events that you guys can participate in. So you can always check that out. And as always, your favorite, (laughs) my favorite. Remember, hope, help and compassion for all. Kara's motto. Be the Kara you wish to see in the world is basically the message here. (laughs) Always. And, you know, in terms of help, we talked about how people try to use fandom as activism and sometimes in ways that aren't necessarily fruitful. But there are ways that you can help within fandom. Yeah. In the past couple of years, there's been a couple groups of fans that have done fundraising activities for causes that are specifically relevant to maybe characters or storylines that have taken place throughout the show. So, for example, there have been a couple of ones fundraising for LGBTQ youth, specifically at-risk and homeless youth. And then also last year, there was one for fundraising to help unaccompanied children who are refugees coming into the United States, like Kara. Yeah. And if you're looking for something new coming up this summer, the DC TV Podcast Network is hosting a charity event on Saturday, June June 29th, where they're raising funds for kids in wheelchairs. And then in terms of the rest of Kara's motto, uh, we have hope and compassion, kind of related to kind of the antithesis of the black and white thinking that can occur. Manage your expectations, like don't set them so high that they can't be reached. But, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt and hoping for positive things from time to time is also a solid bet. And the quote that popped into my head as soon as we chose this topic, which I think is a pretty solid summary and something to take forth with you, is what Kara said in season three to Marin. I know how hard it is when everything we know to be true changes, but sometimes all we can do is just accept the way things are and make the best of that. And that is kind of where we're at personally (laughs) yes but on that note we'll be back later this summer with a couple different things for you cycles might have a special topic surprise for us and we'll also do our breakdown of all the different character arcs from season four Mm -hmm. so if our episode today (laughs) inspired your thoughts (laughs) 
feel free to reach out to us on Tumblr, Twitter, or Instagram with your thoughts or suggestions on how to maybe do other things that make the fan experience more fun and enjoyable overall. Thanks for listening.